the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Where is the time gone? Fourth and final hour, Jimmy Sangenberger in for George Brockler. Four minutes after nine o'clock. High of 31. Looks like the sun is out there, but it's supposed to be a foggier day today. Good to be with you. Completing a trifecta, as I filled in for both Deborah and Stefan yesterday. And now, morning for George. And it's great to be with you once again on Denver's local talk leader, News Talk 710 KNUS. So interest rates have been on the rise. Meanwhile, inflation is still rising. You look at what's happening at the grocery store with gasoline. I've been seeing these prices go up, feeling the pain at the pump, feeling the pain at the grocery store. You're buying eggs. You're buying milk, chicken. So many different products have been rising. And there's a lot of concern about how this thing, even though inflation seems to be, according to the Consumer Price Index, sort of taming a little bit, it's still something, especially in particular industries, where we are seeing great difficulties for everyday Americans. And the Federal Reserve is on a quest to tame the skyrocketing cost of everything, to address this inflationary spiral that we have seen. And they will be deliberating very soon, January 31st through the 1st of February, at their next meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee to decide what comes next in setting their benchmark federal funds interest rate. Let's talk about this and get an understanding of what's going on and where we can go from here and the impact that this will have on everyday Americans with Danielle DiMartino Booth. She is the CEO and chief strategist for Quill Intelligence, LLC, the author of the book Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. And for nine years, she was at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas serving as advisor to President Richard W. Fisher, and that includes throughout the financial crisis until his retirement in March of 2015. Danielle DiMartino Booth joins me now. Good morning, Danielle. It's good to talk with you again. Good morning. It's great to be here. So I, I want to start top line because whenever you talk about the Federal Reserve, it can be a difficult topic for folks to kind of follow along with because there are so many different intricacies. Let's just start at the basics. When we talk about inflation and the federal funds rate and sort of how the Fed works, what can you tell us top line about the the, the functionality of that, what they mean? Well, uh, at the moment, the federal officials have been telling us that they're trying to prevent an inflationary spiral from being unleashed on the U.S. economy that would parallel that which we saw in the 70s and the 80s, which was really when when inflation went wild. Uh, 
many indicators, however, tell us that the U.S. economy has started to slow appreciably. Um, we're seeing layoffs extend well beyond Silicon Valley into other, uh, into other industries. We're seeing industrial production slow down, retail sales slow down. Um, but there are also millions of people who are no longer in the U.S. workforce. So there's this appearance that the labor force is tighter than it would be otherwise. And that is what's driving thinking among Federal Reserve officials is that they don't want to stop fighting inflation, even though the economy is slowing. So markets are pricing in that the Federal Reserve is going to begin easing policy around the middle of the year. And yet Fed officials are telling us that that will not be the case, that they will maintain a higher level of interest rates, which, of course, curtails borrowing among households and businesses um, throughout 2023. So uh, in, it, it's a second year, if you will, of the Federal Reserve saying, we're not going to listen to the financial markets and what they dictate we should be doing. We're going to follow our own metrics and make sure that we don't revisit sins of the past that were, that were committed by people who didn't get the inflation genie back in the bottle. So this is, you're talking about the Fed wanting to sort of fight the market, go against what investors are saying. How practical is that, especially if you start seeing repercussions play out among investors that maybe they make decisions that are uh, going one way and the Fed is like, okay, this is a little bit concerning. I mean, how effective can they be at sort of fighting the market, Danielle? Well, it's a very difficult task and it comes down to, you were saying the Federal Open Market Committee meets next Wednesday and Thursday, excuse me, next Tuesday and Wednesday. It really will come down to Federal Reserve officials convincing markets that they plan to remain steadfast in keeping policy tight, in maintaining high levels of interest rates, in shrinking the size of the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, which is in and of itself another form of tightening. It really will come down to job owning. So job owning in what way? In saying to markets, you want for something that we are not going to deliver on, Mm. so you should alter your pricing. And that really will be a case of whether or not they can convince markets that uh, that they're not going to, 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 to lower interest rates when the markets want for them to going into this meeting. Right. You know, they They've had a singular voice saying it's not going to be a large interest rate hike. It's not going to be 75, a quarter, three quarters of a percentage point, or even December's 50 basis points, a half a percentage point. We're going to take that down to 25 basis points, only a quarter of a percentage point. But we're going to maintain this tight level instead of allowing new markets to think that we're going to come riding to the rescue in the second half of the year. We don't want to be premature and presumptuous that Mm. we're going to be able to tackle inflation as quickly as the market anticipates. When you say riding to the rescue, what does that mean? What would that That mean? So that that is something that we we characterize as the quote-unquote Fed put. And that just means that in the past 40 years, investors have grown accustomed to the Fed bailing out the market. So loosening policy, lowering interest rates back down to zero. And, and so, so that the stock market can fully rebound and housing and autos, interest rate sensitive mm-hmm. sectors are not impaired for longer than they would be otherwise. 
Danielle DiMartino Booth is our guest for nine years. She was at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. So traditionally what you see is that when the economy goes into recession or otherwise has an economic downturn that we experience, then the Federal Reserve will tend to reduce interest rates. And that's when so when you say riding in on the horse, sort of uh, saving the day, so to speak, that's the. That's the traditional mode of action for the Fed, and so investors would like to see that. It can help the economy, but that would run potentially run against their objective of reducing inflation or holding the line on inflation, right? Yes, and I think the way you characterize it is best, holding the line on inflation, making sure that, that, that being too early in, in halting this battle against inflation such that it comes roaring back. And then they've got to go again and tighten again and launch a whole new cycle. They're saying rather than do that, we're just going to try and hold the line for longer. You and I both know that when it comes to economic policy, there is a difference between what you intend to do, what your plan is, and what you will actually do. When it comes to the Fed, talk a little bit about that, the the idea of what they intend to do, what their goal might be for this year versus how it might actually pan out, especially if we do start to see all the signs point very clearly and indisputably toward recession. Well, that, that makes for a very tricky situation. It also uh, makes Federal Reserve policy, it becomes a political football at that point. So you'll have people in Congress, the White House, saying the Fed is going too far. They're forcing the U.S. economy into recession, knowingly doing so by not lowering interest rates. And that is when the independence of the Fed is tested. Uh, if they have to push back against um, such forces that are coming out of Washington, D.C., and that is uh, that is indeed a very real possibility, especially as, as as the country and the rest of the world becomes increasingly nervous about this debt ceiling showdown. Yeah, so I, I wanted to ask about that too, because when it comes to the debt ceiling, I mean, I'm not concerned about that, but certainly markets could be at some point, especially as we get closer toward the summer, if there isn't an agreement in Congress. At this time, when you have concerns about Federal Reserve policy and you also have concerns about Congress and the debt ceiling, how do those maybe go together? Could the debt ceiling debacle, potential debacle, um, influence what the Fed ends up doing? What are your thoughts on how those things may go together and how investors view it? Well, there, there's a certain irony here, and that is because Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has had to impose what we call emergency measures to prevent the U.S. government from shutting down. The simplest way I can put it is that the United States has a checking account, just like any of us have a checking account. Normally, they would have to maintain, the Treasury would have to normally maintain a minimum balance in this checking account. But with emergency measures imposed by Treasury Secretary Yellen, the, the Treasury is legally allowed now to run that balance down. And that actually ends up injecting liquidity into the economy, which thereby offsets the effects of the Federal Reserve's quantitative tightening. So it actually initially helps out the Federal Reserve. But once there is an agreement, whether it be potentially out to August or October, we heard yesterday. So God forbid we're we're actually still talking about this six months from now. After that time, though, the, the U.S. Treasury, after the resolution, would have to sell quite a bit of Treasury bills to bring that checking account 
balance of Uncle Sam's back up to the requisite level. At the same time, the Fed will continue to shrink its balance sheet potentially, which means that there will be double liquidity being pulled from the system. It'll feel like a boomerang effect in the economy. And that's why the role that the Federal Reserve is playing is so critical. But again, the irony is that the liquidity the Federal Reserve is pulling out by allowing treasuries to mature off of its balance sheet is going to be offset temporarily while the Treasury runs down its checking account balance to inject funds into the economy to keep the, the, the government uh, and, and, and essential services up and running. What would, what would be the potential impact, Danielle DiMartino Booth, of throwing out more liquidity into the market? All this cash, that's really what you're talking about, is much more in terms of liquid assets and cash back out into the economy vis-a-vis inflation. Well, that's the thing, right? If, if the federal government is going to be spending this money that it otherwise would not have been had there been an early and amicable resolution to the debt ceiling, again, mm. I, I, I keep coming back to the word irony, it will end up offsetting the moves by the Federal Reserve to deplete economy by 60 to $95 billion a month by shrinking its balance sheet. So the, the, the Treasury's actions effectively neutralize mm of the Federal Reserve, but for a time only. And then you approach the point where Uncle Sam is, cannot legally have an overdrawn balance. The implication is that U.S. would default on its debt, which is, that's DEFCON 1, that's the impossible, uh, at which point that there will be a resolution of some kind, even if there are spending cuts that come with it, which the hardliners in the, in, in the Republican Party are demanding. Um, and again, that would that would not put the country in a, in a good place. Hmm. Google 2011 debt ceiling standoff, and you see that there was a very detrimental effect on the stock market, on the, the bond market, on on hiring in America. So there were very it, it put the economy hmm. in a very precarious place, and we certainly don't want to go there again. But we do have a blueprint of what it looks like and, and what the fallout would be. So so you believe that the the consequences of not resolving the debt ceiling issue in fairly short order could really be dramatic? Well, it certainly could be. And we again, we have seen this before. And that is why you have the White House coming out preemptively and saying, you know, we are absolutely not going to negotiate we're not going to be cutting the services that are being demanded to be cut. In 2011, S&P, Standard & Poor's, downgraded the sovereign debt of the United States because there was no commitment to curtail entitlement spending that is becoming debilitating uh, to carry for the United States, whether it's Social Security or Medicare reforms. Uh, is, look, look at what's happening in France. You know, there are absolute riots in the streets because uh, – over. Between now and 2030, the government of France wants to increase the retirement age from the age of 62 to 64 in the space of the next seven years. We would see similar types of, of proposals coming from the Republicans such that we can reduce the amount of entitlement spending going out further into the future and kind of, uh, in kind of bolstering the, the balance sheet future obligations of the United States. So is it on the other hand though Danielle DiMartino Booth our guest isn't this sort of 
shouldn't this be more of a wake-up call? I mean, we see this consistently where you have these kinds of fights, especially when you have a Republican Congress and or, or even just one House of Congress, as we see right now, and a Democratic president. This is like seems like kicking the can down the road. If we just if if Congress just accepts the debt ceiling and says, okay, we're going to raise it and we're not going to have any sort of concerns here. At some point, don't you have to pay the piper? At some point, don't we have to either experience the consequences of not addressing the fiscal cliffs that we've got right now or or we need to address this situation like it's, it's all. It's it's concerning to me where we have this sort of life or death scenario. We have to extend the debt limit right away or else we will have this disaster. But meanwhile, we have all these issues that you're talking about that are festering and the, the politicians are unwilling to actually take actions to address those long term issues. Look, this has been an issue for the United States for multiple decades and the credit standing of the United States uh, is increasingly impaired because we will not go head on and face these challenges uh, and address our future spending. A corporation would never be allowed to operate this way. You would never have a board of directors say, oh, okay, you can have as much cash as you want. We can run up as much debt as you want. Right. No, the bond market would, would the bond market would, would, uh, it would punish any kind of a company that acted so recklessly. And yet we assume that the Congress of the United States and the White House can play by a different set of rules. You know, that might be okay if the United States was the only economy on the planet. Uh, but we still depend for at least a quarter of our treasuries for foreigners to step up and buy at auction, at treasury yeah. auction. And that presumption should not necessarily be a given if we refuse to enact reforms and get our fiscal house in better order for future generations of Americans to not be so loaded down with 31 trillion and counting of U.S. debt. Yeah, and so there could be a calculus among some Republicans in Congress that we're seeing in the House that are especially those that are willing to hold the line on their fiscal positions. They could say, okay, we may have some potential negative repercussions to the market and other things as a result of waiting longer to reach a deal on the debt limit, but it's for the greater good because we have to address some of these concerns that you and I are discussing right now. I mean, I don't know how long that calculus lasts. This is D.C., and normally the politicians don't want to wait and deal with the immediate political fallout that can come from that. But at the same time, we may see something a little bit different in Congress than we normally do based on, for example, what we saw with the Speaker of the House vote. We will. And, and, you know, I'll take the devil's advocate position on McCarthy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, it took 15 votes. I understand that. But boy, did we see a patient man. He just methodically went from one vote to another after another and waited it out and and, and showed that he had the the fortitude to simply wait. Mm. And waiting can be very expensive when you feel like a, a, a time bomb is ticking in the background. Uh, and, and again, these are reforms that will at some point have to be made, especially as the months go by. And if the Federal Reserve sticks to its guns, does not lower interest rates, possibly just raises them to a certain level and keeps them there, well, then the interest expense of the United States is going to become very problematic 
this year in 2023, as even Treasury bill sales are going to be done at a much higher interest rate. Final question for you, Danielle DiMartino Booth, and really appreciate your time this morning. Again, Danielle spent nine years at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, so we appreciate your insights. What should we be watching for in the coming couple of weeks, both leading up to the Fed's meeting next week, next Tuesday and Wednesday, and following that, especially given that, we, as we talked about before, there may be a difference between what they say they want to do and what they actually do. So I think I think I think every 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 public uh, presentation by by uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell is going to be extremely important to listen to, as well as some, as some of his closest lieutenants. Follow me on Twitter at Demartino Booth. You'll find out exactly who those individuals are. If they stay as a cohesive unit and indicate that we are going to continue going into the summer at the March FOMC meeting, at the June meeting as well, and then maintain higher interest rates, you know, that will that will have an effect on companies, and you will start to see more and more layoff announcements that are harmful to the real economy. Ask any state comptroller right now. State tax revenues really have begun to disappoint on the downside. There's no other stimulus that's going to come to the rescue. And, and by the way, reignite inflation with it. We should not anticipate the things that we saw after the pandemic coming out of Washington, D.C. If we can't even resolve the debt ceiling, they're certainly not going to be writing huge checks to ignite inflation. Well, we will be watching with great interest, that's for sure. Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist for Quill Intelligence LLC, author of the book Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Thank you so much for joining us, breaking this down. Uh, Well done and appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. Once again, Danielle DiMartino Booth joining us here on The George Brockler Show. Jimmy Sangenberger filling in for George this morning. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, some thoughts on that and more. What are your calls? Uh, what are your thoughts on anything that we've talked about today? We'll have open lines for the rest of the show at 303-696-1971. Keep it right here. You're listening to Denver's local talk leader, News Talk 710 KNUS. Welcome back. Jimmy Sangenberger in for George Brockler. The time has just been flying by. Bottom line from that conversation with Danielle DiMartino Booth, you have really two choices on the debt ceiling discussion. One, is it time to pay the piper and address the fiscal cliff that we've got? The economic crises that could come down the line because of the national debt is it will will congress finally act or will they take the easier route politically in the short term one that will also help out the federal reserve when it comes to what markets would like what you might like which is to reduce interest rates once we hit Clearly into a recession. I believe we've been in a recessionary space for a while, but we don't have that that same gusto of a recession that we have in the past, and that is about to change. And so you would want the Fed to reduce interest rates, theoretically, to make borrowing easier and help 
cushion a recession. That's the idea. That's a lot of what Danielle was talking about from why markets would like to see that shift in the Fed policy. But, you know, when you look at the national debt, you look at the debt ceiling, there are a lot of issues that come up. It gets complicated. But it's important to understand just a little bit what's happening when it comes to these bigger economic issues. And so I appreciate Danielle DiMartino Booth joining us in the last segment. 303-696-1971, our telephone number. Let's go to Bill in Parker. Good morning, Bill. How are you? Morning, Jimmy. Fine. Thank you. Yourself? I'm doing good. What's up? I just wanted to talk about this whole thing about minimum wages and and, and worker type uh, legislation or policies. Sure. You know, when when someone offers a, a job that does that if that if worked full time forty hours does not allow that person to survive at some low level, low but realistic level in that community, I would say that's not a job. It's a joke masquerading as a job, and they've been able to get someone to fill it. Someone who's not doesn't have their wits about them, doesn't have any confidence, or is just devoid of options. But to get someone to work where I, as the taxpayer, have to now come up with Section 8 support, uh, earned income tax credit support, Medicaid, um, these fuel assistance things, I'm just, as a taxpayer, I'm just supporting their business at that point because they've gotten someone to take the bait and take a so-called job that that doesn't do what a job has to do. So, Bill, I think you're making a conclusion that I don't know is fair to make, drawing the conclusion almost that most businesses are fleecing their employees, particularly in the restaurant industry. And let's be clear that really there are two classes of workers in the restaurant industry. One, that is the long-term tenured employees who have um, our career restaurateurs, and they may be especially on the management side or maybe lifelong service, you do have that. And that often you will find in higher end, finer dining kinds of restaurants. But when you're talking at a lot of the fast food restaurants, you go to a coffee shop or you go to a number of other places, what you are seeing is people who are doing their jobs for the first time or they are in college or maybe they are out of college and one of the problems is that they studied something they shouldn't have probably in college and so they got a master's in whatever and they're working at Starbucks and then they're finding themselves in a prickly situation that has nothing to do with Starbucks but has more to do with the fact that they decided to pursue a degree and even a master's degree and rack up all this debt and then they can't find a job that is commensurate with those skills uh, so I, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that you are dr- respectfully drawing a conclusion that is a, a lot more complicated than simplistic. Yeah, I, I'm aware that um, there, there's a lot of reasons why people end up in low-paying jobs. But what I'm saying is if, if Starbucks, Starbucks going to, I guess most businesses are going to pay the least they can for the most part. They're not going to gratuitously just pay more than they feel they have to. So if you've got a low-skilled job and you've got a lot of people that could do that job, you can certainly leverage that mm-hmm. advantage. But what I'm saying is you are the people that are doing that. Now, not the high-end restaurants, not these other uh, manufacturing-type jobs or whatever. Um, you are, in effect, leaning on the taxpayer to fill the gap. And, and I'm just saying, no, if your business does not produce in right here in, in Parker, the uh, McDonald's was paying nineteen dollars an hour. So let's say that that's a good way to live in Parker for that kind yeah. of work. 
Yeah, right. Starting. Yep. It's it's right on See? the. It's a big sign right mm-hmm. on the door. Okay. Mm-hmm. Big sign right on the door. For, for and that's not an assistant manager. Anything. That's just somebody behind the counter. Right. You can probably live on that in Parker uh, as a single person. You you're not going to live well, but you can probably make the nut. But it, the the fact that if they felt that they could get away with paying the minimum wage, that person would then have to get Section Eight, would have to get Medicaid, would have to get aid to dependent children or um, earned income tax credits, which I, the taxpayer, would be bridging the gap well, between but, that person living in their hold, car. Hold on, though, Bill. I mean, if you're talking in that kind of a situation, nineteen dollars per hour for a starting wage for McDonald's, you can't expect the business at McDonald's is supposed to say, oh, come on over and we will cover all of your costs. We will pay you, th- what th- What do you have to do at that point, $30 to, to be satisfactory no. in that way no. or what, whatever amount it is? You can't expect that McDonald's is going to just say, oh, start on over here and we are going to cover all these costs so that you don't end up on welfare because you're not doing maybe the other things that you need to do personally. I don't think you should just be putting on the business. Jimmy, I was Giving that as an example of, of a wage, the bottom wage that probably would allow a person to live in the community at least, based on other you know market rents and things like that. I wasn't saying that it should be okay. higher than that, but the the state minimum wage is fifteen dollars an hour. It's obsolete in many parts of the state, and the federal wage is in the seven dollar range, which is right. a complete joke, maybe except in Mississippi or something. So it, to me, it would make sense to have if you're going to have a minimum wage, have one a that's based on the median wage, and it's based on the local median wage, the regional within the zip code or within you know something around the zip code. Well, that makes but, no but sense to have thing, a minimum Bill, wage. So that's fair enough. But when you're determining median wage, that is actually like you do also have to wonder. Okay, how are those numbers calculated? What are you actually putting in as far as the inputs? The kind of jobs is it industry dependent? Right. Is it just general? Like you, this mm-hmm. is one of the reasons why I I think that that would be risky, and why I'm not necessarily in favor of minimum wage in general because you have so many different factors where industries can be wildly different in terms of what's practical or mm-hmm. what those yeah. positions are worth. Somebody who's starting at McDonald's probably isn't worth too much relative to what that company has to pay out as far as other expenses, as far as what they're able to bring in for trying to keep their meals as cheap as possible, so on and so forth. But here's what I do want to say, though, Bill. I appreciate you calling in and lending in some nuance to this discussion because we don't often have this. We don't have the the considerations of, okay, what is the pay there? What's practical for a business? What's practical to live on? So on and so forth. Right. Um, that, what, what I was proposing was if you had a regional, a local-based uh, minimum wage, so it would be based on, say, your zip code and any zip code that touches your zip code. So, so you have all these little circles of zip codes, right? And you have a median wage there uh, that, that is calculated. You know, you can argue all day about how you calculate these statistics. But it is calculated that's probably somewhat meaningful and accurate. And if you have it spread out among several zip codes, you're not going to have the domination of just one thing. If, you know, you use Greenwich, Connecticut, you know, everybody doesn't isn't a hedge fund manager, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you spread it out around Greenwich, Connecticut, you start to get an average that becomes meaningful, okay? And and to me, that if, if you're going to work in that area, then you've got to be able to live somewhere near that area. And and if you're going to live somewhere near that area, you've got to have a wage that allows that. So I'm just saying, if your business depends on people right. not being able to connect the endpoints 
then that's a problem. Well, so and, and it I, winds up landing in the taxpayer's I th- lap. I think, though, Bill, that the trends have been, and not just because of increases in minimum wage, but the trends have been naturally in a higher direction as far as those wages. I mean, and you look under the, the Trump administration, we saw the greatest gains that were going on in wage increases was among the bottom quartile of people, which was very encouraging. So you are seeing some of those natural pressures. But at the same time, if you jack up the minimum wage too much, if the cost becomes so much when you got food costs, you got transportation costs, and you've got added employee costs, we have seen at different kinds of stores and different kinds of restaurants, the increasing use of kiosks and so forth to automate those kinds of positions, which doesn't help anybody because then you got people who are out of work final thought right right oh capitalism is very dynamic and will respond to changes in in the environment that's the beauty of capitalism but uh if if your business model depends on other people having to live in their parents basement or live in their car or live you know i don't know many businesses then then your then your business model is not valid and if you go away that's probably okay well you know what i think uh, yes and that's sort of the creative destruction of capitalism as they say and you but but i don't think there are very many businesses who are doing what you described bill but you know what excellent call i really appreciate the exchange thank you sir and have a great day All right, 303-696-1971. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side, Jimmy Sangenberger in for George Brockler. We'll pick up more of your calls and texts. Stephen, stay on the line. We want to hear about your experience in the restaurant industry. Keep it right here. Denver's local talk leader, News Talk, 710 KNUS. We're under that time pressure now, coming up to the end of the show. Boy, yes, they've, have these four hours flown by. Jimmy Sangenberger filling in today for George Brockler, News Talk 710-KNUS. We've been talking about this bill that has been proposed or is about to be proposed in the Colorado State Legislature by Denver Democrat State Rep Emily Sirota on predictability pay for the service industry, and it would be utterly disastrous. And it's really driven home uh, a lot of different issues and points of discussions. And by the way, one text that came in, you'd think before they submit a bill, they discuss it with the industry it affects. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? Stephen Right here in Colorado has been waiting patiently. Want to go to him here on the program as our final call of the day. Good morning, Stephen. How are you? I am good, sir. How are you today? I'm doing just fine. What's on your mind? Well, you know, I've been in the industry for 30 years and coming through the pandemic and watching these new legislative uh bills coming through written by morons that have never actually worked in the industry. It, it's killing the restaurant industry. And again, they have not they have not consulted the restaurant, you know, business whatsoever. But I can tell you uh, what is truly happening is, you know, we in the industry are starting to look at uh, the model, which is, you know, you have the front of the house, back of the house type of individuals, uh, whereas you have servers and bartenders making four or five, six hundred dollars a shift. They work five shifts, four shifts a week. Back of the house, those guys not only are working five shifts at my location, four shifts at another location, filling in the blank with a third job. 
all right, because those guys are making $19 an hour. That's what our industry can support. Um, what we will start looking at is not only sharing tips, um, Mercantile downtown, which is in Union Station, they do a very good job of that where the servers and back of the house, they are all part of the pool. Um, but we're also looking at uh, eliminating that uh, position as far as server as well, whereas mm. – you know, you, more of a pub-style service where you go to the bar to order a drink, you go to the bar to order your food, you have someone that will bring out your food, but they're not going to be there to uh, service you as far as water, drinks. Eliminating those positions, not only to save us on the payroll payroll taxes, um, but it just is the numbers just keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller in a business that already yeah. is making razor-thin margins. Well, let me ask a question because obviously we had a, a listener in the last segment who was talking about businesses and rest, restaurants in particular that aren't paying their employees enough where they end up having to go into welfare programs or Section 8 housing or, or whatever. Um, I, I think that you know there are instances where people are getting able to get jobs in the current makeup of the restaurant industry that if you continue down this path that the government is leading and other factors, let's be clear, there are a variety of factors contributing to the constraints on the growth of the restaurant businesses and, and the, the ability to maintain the positions that you have. But as you have more of those government pressures, then those people who may be lower skilled and, and lower level positions at these restaurants could end up finding themselves no longer working there in the first place. And then they are completely out of a job altogether. Yes, that is uh, very, very true. Uh, you know, you take a, a server at a Buffalo Wild Wings or a cook at a Buffalo Wild Wings. You know, I'm using them as an example because it's, you know, we all know it. It's burgers, mm -hmm. beer, and wings. chicken wings. Yep. Very, very low-skilled. McDonald's is another one. But, however, Buffalo Wild Wings, that's, again, a tipped industry where McDonald's is not. McDonald's, you know, they're going to have to tr figure out their business model, and they are. They are eliminating the front counter servers, right? So those jobs are going away. You keep down this path, you're going to start eliminating these jobs. And these people will not have a an introduction to learning how to work, showing up on time, doing the job that they were tasked to doing. That, that skill is going away. Right. You know, um, and the government is killing it. You know, we sit here and we scratch our heads going, is anyone asking us what the what these numbers really are going to reflect on our bottom line? No, they're not. They are not asking us. They're not asking us, and they've never done it before. It's 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 infuriating that you sit there and try to run a business, and then you get these little guys just kind of, you know, you got to pay your taxes. Right. Yes, we all. Well, do. yeah, you have the. It, it, it's contemptuous and it's presumptuous on the part of those legislators, especially those who may not have experience at all in the industry or may uh, not have any interest in speaking, and that's pretty clear here, speaking with the industry. Although, when you're talking about that kind of experience, aren't there other industries that provide similar experience? I mean, you have the restaurant industry. you got retail, though, grocery stores, working at a mall, things like that, that at least do provide other opportunities. That is very, very true. However, are those individuals going to be tipped, right? Right. So you can say flexibility. If you're going to go into, say, a retail environment, there's not truly a lot of flexibility there, you know? Um, 
so it's not as truly flexible. And if you want to talk about someone that couldn't go in there, again, do five shifts a week and make a living wage as a server bartender, you can do that in a relatively short period of time. It takes a lot of skill to get to a level from working at, say, a Walmart or something like that. Right. Yes, you can get a good wage there. Costco is a very good example of who pays a very good living wage with benefits um, in that industry. Does that translate into somebody that's going to go into work in Macy's at their higher end, uh, say, women's department? You know, those those women are very skilled at what they do. Um, you know, I, I don't know what their living wages are, but I would guess sure. with someone that uh, has that type of skill set, All right. that is that doesn't translate from someone from Costco. You know what I'm saying? Sure, sure. Well, Stephen, hey, excellent call. I appreciate it. I, I got to run. Um, I have a final thought before the end of the show, but I appreciate you joining us this morning. Thanks for your insights. Very good, sir. You have a good afternoon. Thank you. You as uh-huh. well. It does feel like been up all these hours. It does feel like, doesn't it, Billy, feel like it should be the afternoon already, not just coming upon 10 a.m.? One more, uh, a couple more listener texts. Uh, This is for restaurants only, but years out, it'll be for everybody that has a business in the state of Colorado. You could see exactly that come about, that's for sure. Start with the service economy and then grow from there into other relevant industries or things similar to what this Sirota bill would do. A couple of listeners, I appreciate the text noting a a great show and that you enjoyed it. I'm glad for that. I will be in for Stefan Tubbs tomorrow night from 4 to 7 right here on News Talk 710 KNUS. I believe I will be joined by my good friend, Professor of Communication at, Associate Professor of Communication at Regis University. Dr. Rob Margeson, I'm hoping he'll be joining me tomorrow. We've got much to discuss, including what's happening in Florida with Governor Ron DeSantis in schools there with the AP African American Studies course and what's happening with AI, artificial intelligence, and the impact that could have on academia. Lots happening. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger. Tune in Saturday as well. Caldera's in tomorrow for George. Have a great week. God bless America. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.